You can go ahead and have a seat unless you forgot to get some communion elements, at which point you should probably stand back up and make your way if you are going to participate in communion today. Communion is open to anybody that is here. If you love Jesus and have a relationship with him, doesn't matter what your church background is. Um, if you love Jesus, the communion table is open to you. If you're not, if you're not yet made a commitment to Christ yet, we pray that that will be uh, maybe an opportunity that you would take even today as you encounter Him. It's nice to have a nice crew. I think we've got some ACFers in the house. Is that right? Hey, let's give a little welcome to ACF. It's our campus ministry. You guys have finals week coming. Wow, I don't envy that. I remember that. But I don't envy that. So yeah, as you guys are finding your way back to your seat. Hey, let me give just a couple quick updates. I've got one thing I want to share with you. It's sort of got a couple bullet points to it, though. Uh, last month, we had put a challenge in front of the church family regarding missions giving. I don't know if you remember that. We were talking about GCF giving. We had a missionary that came. Uh, we opened up some special giving for that missionary in particular or missions giving in general. And we just said, hey, let's really see if the Lord would really uh, stir your hearts. And so we want to come back to you. You know, we put a challenge like that and let you know kind of how things went. Uh, we saw a 20% increase in the number of givers. So that's kind of cool. We can apply that. Yes. That means that somebody that said, I have not been giving to the Great Commission Fund or whatever, said, you know what, we're going to do that as a family or as an individual. And so we just celebrate that. We think that's a great win. The other thing that's pretty cool, though, is that if you look sort of month by month, the average monthly giving to missions up to April and then kind of how we did in April, we actually saw a 70% increase in giving two missions. So that was awesome. I mean, that was like, that, that's even more commendable. That means that people that were already giving said, I wanna kinda lean in and give a little bit more and do some stuff as well as people getting on board. So we just wanna say thank you for that. That's a huge blessing. It's the way that we help missionaries all around the world and we wanna see that continue to go. Uh, go forward. So what I want to do today as we're coming the first Sunday of this month is I actually want to give, I want to dovetail with that and give you just a really quick sort of giving snapshot of where we are kind of as a church because it's one of those sort of things that I think if we can do periodically just kind of keep it in front of you. So here's what we're actually seeing. There has been incredible, incredible generosity uh, given for, uh, through this year. Uh, if, if I compare, if you compare the overall giving, and that's everything from the Life Conference to missions giving to general fund to uh, faith forward giving with the building to helping Afghan refugees, like if you put all of that together and you compare last year to this year, we have actually given substantially more as a church this year. And so that's, there is, I said a few weeks ago, there is a spirit of generosity among you. And I know some of you are in a place, especially you guys are in college, you're like, I got no money, man. That's like, I got nothing. That is the best time to start being a good steward. I don't know if you know that. When you have like nothing, that's a great time to start thinking about stewardship, which is great. So be thinking about that, college students and young adults and everything else. But there is a spirit of generosity that we are seeing here that is really substantial and I want to just say thank you for the good work that's going on. Here is the biggest need, okay? The biggest need that we're experiencing right now as we're going forward is that our general fund, which is probably the least sexy of the funds, right? I mean, it's sort of like missions and eh, sexy. That's the wrong term. Anyway, like it's the least exciting to like be like, oh man, if I could just give to a general fund, what could be better than that? That's how we take care of our ministries. Uh, we, we fund our ministries. We keep the lights on. We pay our staff. All of that kind of stuff happens through the general fund. So up to this point in the year, with all kinds of good, generous giving happening, 
happening, uh, the general fund has been running at about 85%, a little less than 85%. So we don't want to do that the whole year, obviously, but this would be a great time for us to be refocused. So we're sharing this with you to say, just be aware, be prayerful. If you're in a place you would say, man, we don't actually give anything as a family to this church. Man, May would be a great month to start. Uh, and if you're in a place you say, yeah, we can give a little bit more, we can, we can, we can push in, it will help us kind of make up some of that difference. So amidst that spirit of generosity, I felt compelled to just share that with you to say, if you don't know where the needs are the greatest, it's hard to be aware of how to help. So uh, what we actually do on our weekly bulletin that some of you get in your inbox and some of you get when you come here, we actually print out, this is not a new thing, but we have a little financial update on the back of that every week. So you can sort of see, if you, as you're giving and stuff, you can track and sort of see how are we actually doing. So I wanted to put that in front of you. Spirit of generosity, incredible. Missions giving, I, it surpassed in many ways the goals that I had hoped. Biggest need right now, general fund giving. Let's be aware from that. Uh, be aware of that as we go into the month. We'll make up some of that difference, and I think we're going to see God do some great things. Everybody does their part. Steward what God's called you to do. It's going to be awesome. Uh, so that is the end of the public service announcement. Uh, now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24 as we are continuing on. Today is the fifth message in our series that we have entitled The Wondrous Cross. Palm Sunday, we were talking about the cross as the great revealer. Good Friday, when fears are stilled. Easter Sunday morning, he is risen. Last week, we were talking about access to God. That was sort of a special time. Man, you guys were like, there was like some hunger you know, in the room, and that's one of the things that we're praying for is that God would increase our hunger, you know? So we got people saying, I need more of Jesus in my life or I'm bringing my needs to him and, 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 and looking for him to meet those needs. That is powerful. So last week we were asking the question, in light of what Christ has done for us, we have access to God, so why don't we encounter more of him? And that's not a, a guilt trip, it's actually an invitation to come hungry, that we would be always satisfied, uh, sorry, always grateful, but never satisfied. So we talked about that last week, I got, the, I got the phrase right last week, so anyway. Always grateful for what he's done, but never satisfied. That's what we're talking about, access to God and going after more of him. Um, because of the wondrous cross, we have access to God, heaven is breaking through to earth, divinity reaching down to humanity, our brokenness connecting to the life of Christ. The wondrous cross is a powerful, life-shaping revelation of Jesus to our world. His sacrifice opening the door to a restored life for every person who calls on him. So the empty tomb reveals that Jesus was the prototype for the new creation, the new kingdom coming to earth. And that phrase is one I'm borrowing from N.T. Wright. I'll give you a little longer quote from him here later in the message. But that kind of confidence statement, we've got access to God, that was not what some travelers on the Emmaus Road were feeling when they were surprised by a stranger who had come to travel with them the very day that Jesus' body was found to be missing from the tomb where he had been buried. So I want you to read to, uh, with me today in Luke chapter 24. It's a long passage. We don't usually take this big of a bite, so just kind of bear with me. We're going to read through the whole thing together. I'm asking the Holy Spirit to reveal things to your heart and to mine, and there's a lot to feast on. 
We're going to focus in on the question, the invitation, and the revelation today. That'll be kind of the structure of the message. So read with me, if you will. Holy Spirit, give us insight into your word. Luke 24, verses 13 and following. It says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in the word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he, would, he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and they told us that there had been, they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and, then, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Verse 33, then they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. May God have a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So our message today is finding Christ in the brokenness. And to be specific, I'm talking about the breaking of the bread. What does it mean for us to find Christ in the breaking of the bread? And of course today we're coming to the communion table where we will have an opportunity to experience that. I love this passage of scripture. I love reading it. I love, I've preached on it different times and in different settings. Um, it's one of those passages of, of, of scripture that is so nuanced that you just continue to find like new pieces and new things where you see the way in which Jesus is acting. You see his plan unfolding. You see people trying to understand him and what he's doing and you're reading it and you're trying to understand him and what he's doing and yet you know there's something special that's happening here. I think to understand the premise of this passage, we have to ask the question, well, why didn't they recognize him? 
I mean, that, that's kind of a weird thing. You know, verse 16, it says, like, they were kept from recognizing him. So they're walking along this road. Jesus comes up to them, literally just says, hey, guys, what are you talking about? And they're like, oh, we're talking about this, that, and the other. You know, but they, they don't realize that it's him. And as you read through the scripture, you kind of find yourself as almost a fly on the wall being like, guys, it's Jesus right there with you. And yet it gives me pause to think about the times in my life or in your life where you may look back and realize that Jesus was actually with you in a way that you didn't recognize at the time. How many of you have had that experience? Where you've looked back, look at this. Raise your hand up higher so you can build some people's faith. That's a fairly strong testimony. I mean, seriously, somebody's looking at you going like, there's a lot of crazy people here, <laughs> right? Or like, or like Jesus actually is changing lives. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a strong apologetic when you think about that. Thank you for, thank you for your testimony. So you look back on your life, and I think we're gonna look back on our life in a lot of ways, and we're gonna see the times that Jesus was there. We didn't maybe recognize him, and I'm sure the disciples here uh, that were walking on the road to Emmaus, followers of Christ, and they're gonna say, like, I can't believe we walked all that way with him and didn't realize it was him. So how did that, how did that happen? Um, I was reading N.T. Wright in his book, Simply Jesus. I, I sort of semi-quoted him before. Let me give you a little longer quote from him. Uh, N.T. Wright says, this is what Jesus said would happen within the lifetime of his hearers. And just like note that, within the lifetime of his hearers. We're gonna take a quick rabbit trail on that. A new power is let loose in the world. That's what we're celebrating from Easter. The power to remake what was broken, to heal what was diseased, to restore what was lost. He goes on to say, this is the real beginning of the kingdom. Jesus risen person, body, mind, heart, and soul is the prototype of the new creation. There was something in the resurrection of Christ and in the resurrected Christ that was recognizable but that was changed. So that at first glance, his friends would even walk with him or Mary Magdalene would hold on to them and say, are you the gardener? And not recognize that it was him. There was something in his physical countenance that had changed. And what N.T. Wright is essentially saying is this. This is what he was talking about, an outpouring of kingdom power that would raise him from the dead, initiate a new kingdom, and bring him back in a changed way. Now I'll say as a sidebar, it's not a good apologetic to say the king has risen and nobody can recognize him, right? So scripture is being honest with us in saying that the people couldn't see him until something was revealed to them, right? How many of us have come to a place in our spiritual journey where we said like, how did I not see this before? Another show of hands, right? How did I not see this before? But there is this revelation of Christ to us, and that's what they need, even though they are followers who care for him. Now, I, I wanna just, this, I said this is a little rabbit trail, but I think it's worth just noting. There's this curious statement by Jesus that N.T. Wright is alluding to, what Jesus said would happen in the lifetime of his hearers. You remember in Matthew 16, it's in verse 28, he actually says, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And I remember even as a kid, I read that passage and I was like, that does not make sense because if Jesus coming in his kingdom is what we refer to as the second coming of Christ, those people are all long dead, 
So that doesn't make sense at all. But that is actually not fully what Jesus was talking about. The second coming of Christ certainly hasn't happened yet. These people are long dead. What was he referring to? Right after that passage of Scripture, if you've wrestled with it, is the transfiguration. You remember what happened at the transfiguration? He takes some of his closest disciples up and he's transfigured before them. They see the glorified Christ like the revelation picture of Jesus and they're overwhelmed. That is the kingdom of God beginning to break through. Then they experience in their lifetime the resurrection. Then they experience in their lifetime the spirit of God coming at Pentecost. Then they experience in their lifetime the spread of the kingdom through the preaching of the early church. So you see this kind of kingdom of God is coming. Kingdom of God is among you. Kingdom of God is here. And yet here's these disciples are walking along and they don't recognize the new Jesus. He looked different. As we will see, he operates very differently too. This message is actually all about the joyful rediscovery of Jesus and finding that he was actually right there with them. That is a joy that we pray for you. Some of you, you know, even last week when we were kind of going after some access to God things, praying at night, we prayed our living water service, very beautiful. You know, but I see in many of your lives the joy of discovering and rediscovering Jesus, and that's priceless. We pray for more. We pray for hunger. So we're gonna look at three things. The first one will be the longest in this passage. Uh, The first one is the question or the questions. Then we're gonna look at the invitation. Then we're gonna look at the revelation. The questions are kind of interesting uh, because Jesus asks the first question. You know, in the vernacular, he comes up. He's just walking alongside them. They don't know who he is. What are you guys talking about? What's going on? And the question is answered with a question. Don't you love it when people do that to you? Let me answer you this by asking you this. And the answer is, or the, the question that, that Cleopas asks is a little bit snarky. You know, he's like, are you the only person who doesn't know what's happening? Are you the only person in these parts that doesn't know what everybody's talking about? And Jesus asks another question. What are you talking about? And so then they explain the Easter story. They say, this is what happened in Jesus of Nazareth. And I love that they say in that account, they say, and we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one that was gonna redeem Israel. It says their faces were downcast. And here's the amazing thing. When, when somebody asks you the question, when they ask Jesus the question, rather, are you the only person who doesn't know what's going on? It's just, it's so ironic It's so ironic because as is often the case, Jesus would have been very right to ask them the question, do you know what is going on? Like, do you have a clue? In fact, I think we spend a lot of time misinterpreting the facts of our life, right? We're going through a trial and we say, oh, God's abandoned me, or we're going through something that's hard and oh, my friends have rejected me or whatever, and and maybe never stop to ask the question, maybe God is doing something in this. Maybe God is actually at work in this in ways that I cannot yet see. So when we're dealing with our relational upheaval and physical ailments and unexpected losses or challenges or just general disappointment, you may have the facts right. The disciples sort of had the facts right. But it is possible that God is using your situation in ways that are, that are deeper than you perceived. And that's absolutely the case. I mean, we get the easy fly on the wall, sort of, we can look at this and be like, ha they didn't know. We didn't, wouldn't have known, right? They were wrestling with it. They're trying to figure out what is happening. Now, here's what Jesus says in answer, ultimately, to the question. And this, is, this gets kind of interesting. 
It says, he said to them, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe what the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? I mean, that's a loaded theological question that Jesus is answering to their question that they were saying in answer to his question, okay? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, right? Circle this verse, underline it, highlight it. This is an important one. Luke 24, 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, again, keep in mind, they don't know it's Jesus yet. I mean, that's why it's just so like reading, it's just like, guys, he's right there. He's opening your mind, he's opening your eyes to see things in the scriptures that you probably studied all of your life and now all of a sudden you're seeing, wait, this is about the Messiah. Wait, this is about, the, this is about him. This is about him. This is about, and he's right there in front of them. But it hasn't been revealed yet. They haven't figured it out yet. Where do we see Jesus? When we talk about him interpreting to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, what we're talking about is a Christ-centered hermeneutic. This is reading the Bible with the understanding that it is pointing to Christ. In all of scripture, all of the the arc and the narrative of scripture pointing to the person of Christ. So this is where like your mind starts to let you go, whoa, this is, this is crazy that this is all being sort of tied together in such a powerful way. And yet as I did a little bit of digging into this, I thought, well, is that actually true? And so I thought, well, maybe if you give me two and a half minutes, we'll take a look. In fact, I'm gonna list every book of the Bible, and I want you just to think about where perhaps you're reading right now in your time in scripture, and maybe allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate something to you even as we go through this. In all of scripture, the things concerning himself. In Genesis, Jesus is the creator and promised redeemer. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he's the water in the desert. Deuteronomy, he becomes the curse for us. You've already gotten through the Pentateuch. Thank you for indulging me. In Joshua, he is the commander of the army of the Lord. In Judges, he delivers us from injustice. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel, he is all in one, prophet, priest, and king. In 2 Samuel, he is the king of grace and love. In 1 Kings, he is the ruler greater than Solomon. In 2 Kings, he is the powerful prophet. In 1 Chronicles, he is the son of David that is coming to rule. In 2 Chronicles, the king who reigns eternally. In Ezra, he is the priest proclaiming freedom. In Nehemiah, he is the one who restores what is broken down. Can anybody say amen to that this morning? It's okay to get a little excited, by the way. In Esther, he is the protector of his people. In Job, he is the mediator between God and man. In Psalms, he's our song in the morning and in the night. In Proverbs, our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, our meaning for life. In Song of Solomon, he's the author of faithful love. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, the weeping Messiah. In Lamentations, he assumes God's wrath for us. In Ezekiel, he's the son of man. In Daniel, the stranger in the fire. In Hosea, the faithful husband, even when we run away. In Joel, he's sending his spirit to his people. In Amos, he delivers justice to the oppressed. Obadiah, he's a judge of all those who do evil. In Jonah, he's the greatest missionary. In Micah, he casts our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. 
In Nahum, he proclaims a future with a peace that we cannot even imagine. In Habakkuk, he crushes injustice. In Zephaniah, he's the warrior who saves. In Haggai, he's restoring our worship. In Zechariah, he prophesies a Messiah pierced for us. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness who brings healing. And I suspect that's where Jesus stopped. But in Matthew, he's the Messiah who is king. In Mark, he's the Messiah servant. In Luke, he's the Messiah deliverer. In John, he's the Messiah who is God in the flesh. In Acts, he is the spirit who dwells in his people. In Romans, he is the righteousness of God. In 1 Corinthians, he's the power and the love of God. In 2 Corinthians, he's the down payment for what is to come. In Galatians, he's our very life. In Ephesians, unity for the church. Philippians, the joy of our life. Colossians, he's holding the supreme position in all things. In 1 Corinthians, he's our comfort in the last days. In 2 Thessalonians, he is our returning king. In 1 Timothy, he is the savior of the worst sinners. And in 2 Timothy, he is the leader of leaders. In Titus, he's the foundation of truth. In Philemon, he's our mediator. In Hebrews, he's our high priest. In James, he matures our faith. In 1 Peter, he is our hope in times of suffering. In 2 Peter, he's the one who guards us from false teaching. In 1 John, the source of all fellowship. In 2 John, the God in flesh. In 3 John, the source of all truth. In Jude, he protects us from stumbling. In Revelation, he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, he is coming again and is the one who says, I make all things new. Somebody say, praise the Lord. So now, now catch this. So now here's these disciples, their minds opened up to the person of Christ in scripture. He's beginning to reveal to them and they still don't know that it's Jesus. They still don't realize that it's him. So then, they continue on, walking along. And I love this, verse 28. It says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. I've always found that to be curious. Like, just just kind of messing with them? Or I mean, what's it like? Well, guys, I'll see you later. I'm gonna go on now. And of course they say, no, no, stay, stay with us. We, we want you to be with us. We want, it's getting late. Have, have dinner with us and, and all of these sort of things. And so I've, I've wondered about that particular interaction for some time. And I came across this commentary on Luke by A.B. Simpson, who is the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, a denomination that we're a part of, uh, in which in this passage, Simpson lists multiple aspects that we see in Christ in this passage. He's the risen Christ who walks with us who knows our circumstances, who speaks to us, who opens scriptures to us, as we've seen with his disciples. But then he says this, he is the Christ that desires intimacy with us. And he explains it this way. He says, there is something fondly playful and intensely human in the statement that he acted like he was going further. But this was only because he wanted to be pressed. He would not stay as an unwelcome guest. He wanted their insistent love and was willing to be constrained. Hmm. There are so many takeaways. I wonder if this simple one would be helpful to you. 
that Christ would organize their circumstances so that they might invite him to be with him, which is what he desired to do in the first place. That God might orchestrate your circumstances so that you would actually desire to be with him, to constrain him, to hold him back with you just a little bit longer, to linger in his presence just a little bit more because that's kind of his heart for you in the first place. Like Jesus doesn't need them, but he knows that they need him. And so he is orchestrating an invitation to which he is eager to say yes. Does that resonate with your heart today? I wonder, maybe even this week, if God might orchestrate an invitation in your life that you might linger in his presence to which he would be eager to say yes. Some of us are living a dry walk with Jesus because we're not learning to press in. We're not learning to wait. We're not learning to be quiet. We're not learning to be still. We're always talking. Gotta learn to listen. So he's the Christ who desires intimacy with us. This makes me think about the importance of hunger. Lord, increase our desire for more of you. You know, I've actually had people in this church saying, Pastor, you're not gonna believe this, but God's like increasing my hunger for him. And it's like the best thing ever because I'm not trying to fabricate hunger, but God is giving me hunger. It's a gift. And then he's meeting that hunger as I'm leaning in to press in with him and I'm learning to pray deeper and I'm, and I'm in the word more and all this kind of, that's a spiritual work. That's a revelation of God. That is him responding to the invitation to come and be with us. So Lord, increase our desire for more of you. We pray that for you. Please pray that for me. Psalm 107.9, for he satisfies the thirsty and he fills the hungry with good things. I just read that this morning. I was like, hey Lord, I'm gonna put that in my sermon. He satisfies the thirsty. He fills the hungry with good things. So we see this sort of interesting invitation. And then, then the story gets really weird really quick. So here's what happens in the revelation. They're finally gonna get who he is when they sit down. It says, verse 30, they sat at the table with him. He took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Like this, this is like just a holy moment. I don't know if you, if you get it, I don't know if you see it. This is like a holy moment that we get to be the fly on the wall and just kind of observe. Here's these people, they're walking with Jesus all this time. They don't realize that it's him and then he breaks the bread. Was it the feeding of the 5,000? Was it the celebration of Passover right before his death? What, what was sparking in their memory that was reminding them? But have you had that experience when something is like, there's a name on the tip of your tongue, a word on the tip of your tongue, and you're like, ah, it's like right there, and I can't quite get it. You know, or some, you're looking at somebody's face, and you're going like, I know that guy, I know, I know his face, I know his name, name, you know what I mean? Some of you, you've been there, right? How about that moment when it's like, ah, that's it. It finally comes to you, right? His name is Dean. It's like, yeah, his name is Dean. I've been searching for it for the whole message. That's actually not true. Just kidding. 
there's that re- moment of revelation. I, I wonder what that was like for them, right? So they're sitting at the table. He breaks the bread, and they're like, this is Jesus with us. Revelation. He has now revealed himself to them. Verse 31 is very action-packed. Jesus breaks the bread. They realize that it's him. And then they don't even start a new sentence before saying, and then he disappears. <laughs> like, I would at least start a new sentence. Maybe like give, give a moment to pause, give a minute to process. Like we've realized it is, but instantly he's gone. Uh, I read years ago Robert uh, McAfee a book, uh, he's an author, he's writing on this subject, and he said, probably any 20th century person has difficulty with the biology of this claim. Bodies don't simply vanish that way. Yet we should not have too much difficulty with the theology of this claim, which is a way of telling us that once the moment of insight has been achieved around the table, the action is no longer around the table, the action is somewhere else, and they don't stay. I mean, they stay for a little bit, man, then our hearts burn within us, but they're, they're up and going because they got to tell somebody what's happened. This is a change. The disciples are compelled to go. They're compelled to tell. And keep in mind, they've just settled in in Emmaus. It's a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem. And now they're going back to Jerusalem seven miles, which is not undoable, but it's not nothing either. I mean, it's a 14-mile round trip in one day. And so they're going back. But then this is what Brown says, the author that I quoted a moment ago. He says, but now at the end of the story, they are right back where they started, but now everything is different. Before they were behind locked doors, saving their necks. Now they are about to start going out all over the Roman Empire, putting their necks on the line every day, and that action once begun has no terminus. Like this was the spirit-led birthing of the church that was going to unpack. We're going to read about it in Acts 1.8. The Spirit's going to come on them. They're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. They're going to give their very lives for this new kingdom way of being. And all of the early church disciples did. So recently our youth group was talking about, you know, would you give your life for something that you didn't know was true or you knew was false? And I've never talked to anybody who was like, I would take my lie that far. But they all did. They all gave their lives for this truth. They all gave their lives for this Jesus. The revelation was so powerful. And then they rose at that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord indeed has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Wow. What a powerful encounter. So I was thinking about communion. We're going to do communion here in just a minute. The worship team, actually, uh, if you want to come up and they're going to lead us and sing over us as we, as we do that. So here's, here's just a, a very simple communion thought for you. Um, when you think about what, it does it, what does it mean to follow Christ, you know, the wondrous cross has opened up, we have access to God, we're walking with Christ. If you're in Christ today, if you're not, today is a day perhaps that you would say, I want to bow my knee to the lordship of Christ, which is simply a, a metaphor to say we are 
confessing our sin that has separated us from him and we're falling on his finished work. It's his track record, not, not mine. If it is his track record or mine and I'm sticking to mine, I'm in big trouble before holy God. So he's actually giving me that exchange. That, that, is, the, that is the new kingdom coming. So you actually can receive that. You actually can say, Lord, I, I receive as I repent of sin and look to you, I receive the, the track record of Christ for me. So it's powerful. We pray that today you, someone would, would make that commitment to Christ. But here's what I realize as we're called to communion. <clears throat> we are not simply called to believe, though we're called believers. And we're not simply called to discipline, though Jesus calls us his disciples, right? But there is this extra dimension that I hope you don't miss today. And that is that we are actually called into a intimate relationship of communion with him. He, he says things like, I stand, behold, I stand at the, the door and knock. And he's talking to the church when he's saying this. If anybody hears my voice, I'll come in and I'll, I'll eat with him. It's not about the act of eating. It's, it's this act of communion and being together. And so Jesus actually established building off of the Passover this idea that when you come together for thousands of years, I will be with you when you gather in my name and you will remember me when you remember the broken bread and the shed, and the shed blood in the cup. Man, we, we are like invited into the story. We're invited into the privilege. So I believe there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the presence of Jesus. God may have some work he wants to do in you. He may convict you of something. He may heal you of something. He may rearrange something in your life. He may call you to a new step of obedience when all of a sudden you find him in the broken bread. Some of you are wrestling with that notion because you're saying, well, I, I, don't, I don't really know where Jesus is in this equation. And then I come to 1 Peter 1, and I'll just share this with you real quick, and then we'll, we'll jump in. 1 Peter 1, verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. May that be true of us as we look to the communion table. So Luke chapter 22. If you go back just a few, uh, this is a scripture. It says, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So I'll give you a moment to do that. Just, just a second, just sit tight. It says, likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, and he said, this cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. So what we are commanded to do is to take time and to remember what he has done for us. And so we're gonna just give you some space to do that. When you are ready, if you have the, the, the bread, form of a little cracker, you take that. Remember the body of Christ broken for you. When you're ready, take the cup. Blood of Christ shed for the remission of our sin. Man, what an awesome privilege we get to step into. So take some time. Let the Spirit minister to you and then the worship team will sing over us. This is your time now to be with the Lord.